You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I know how I'm doing this week. I'm extremely excited because I am one of seven authors on a new book put together by Q and the Smithsonian called Flora. Flora is a photographic celebration of the world of plants. It's an extreme honor to be part of this book, and you can go and pick it up wherever books are sold. Just type in Flora DK Publishing and you'll find it. It's gorgeous. I did not know quite what I was getting into when I was asked to be part of this project, and now that the final product is out and about and ready for the world to see, I'm blown away. It is an incredibly informative and easily accessible book, so this isn't just a strict botany text for those in graduate school for botany or something like that. This is extremely accessible, and like I said, it's a photographic exploration, so every photo they chose is gorgeous. So much detail, so much color. This is a book you want to get for your friends and family to learn about plants. It's very accessible. And again, it is an honor to be part of it. So just go Google Flora or check out the link on this episode. All right, that's enough out of me. What do I have for you today? Joining us is Ashley Trask. And Ashley is the nursery manager at the National Tropical Botanical Garden on Kauai in Hawaii. Ashley's job is incredible. She gets to grow all of these wonderful plant species that are native and endemic to the Hawaiian Islands for conservation. I'm going to let her describe everything about her job. She is just an incredible plant person. I'm so happy she reached out to me and it was an honor to talk to her. So let's just get into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ashley Trask. I hope you enjoy. Awesome. Ashley Trask, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Thanks, Matt. So yeah, again, my name is Ashley. I'm the nursery manager for National Tropical Botanical Gardens, our South Shore Gardens on Kauai in Hawaii. And I've been in that position for about seven years now. Um, I run our conservation nursery. So although I grow all the plants for the three gardens that we have on this island, we do a lot of propagation for outside restoration projects all over the island and sometimes even even on other islands. So it's pretty varied. And I grew up in the Northeast. I've lived all over the country and pretty much my whole adult life I've worked for public gardens and in uh, propagation. So that's been my it's been my shtick. Wow, what an awesome trajectory, but I can say a lot of adjectives about your position, but the best one for me is wow, that's super exciting. Uh, but was it always plants for you? I mean, where did you kind of find your knack for growing things, let alone, uh, you know, getting into the conservation side of it, which has its own nuances we can get into? Well, it's so funny because I actually, I can say yes, it was always plants, but also no, because I worked from a very young age. Um, I worked on farms. I worked in greenhouses. I ran my high school's botany department greenhouse. Um, But I never took a botany class in high school. And then I ended up going to college for political science, like hoping to go into law and politics. Um, (laughs) So I was in a completely different trajectory. And, and at some point in the process, I realized that the plants that had always been a hobby for me, it was, always, it was always something that I loved to do from a very, very young age. I had hundreds of houseplants, literally hundreds of houseplants nice. and all over, you know, everything from orchids to cactus and, and anything in between. But I just realized that that was what made me happy. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else for 40 hours a week for the rest of my life that would give me that level of satisfaction. And then although I've done, you know, production growing with annuals and whatever trials and things like that, uh, I sort of started sliding into conservation um, just by the nature of various places I worked. I worked as the propagator for Desert Botanical Gardens in Phoenix, probably for about four, three and a half, four years as their main propagator. And public gardens 
you know, there's a lot of overlap depending on what gardens you're at between, um, you know, collections and collections management, but then also native plant work and, and conservation and rare plants and in whatever area you're in. Mm. Um, and so I think the longer you're in the public garden sector, the more likely you are to fall into a conservation <laughs> bent somehow or another. And then when I moved to Hawaii and started working at NTBG, of course, they are hugely focused in conservation work. Hawaii is one of the few places I think you can work in the botanical or conservation sector and be at a conference and tell people where you're from. And, and they're like, oh, that's too bad. You know, <laughs> we, uh, we lead the world in our rate of extinction. And um, as small as the geographic area of Hawaii is, we make up, I think, about 40% of the federally listed endangered species of plants. Jeez. So, yeah, I mean, it's we're really literally on the edge of extinction with a lot of these species. Um, there have been plants that have gone extinct in the last 20 years that the garden has been working on and other conservation organizations have been working on. Um, and we work in partnership with a lot of other groups um, to try to keep that from happening. It's not completely preventable, but we're doing what we can. It's definitely an uphill battle. Yeah, yeah. And I can't imagine the extra layers that must add to a job like you you have right yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, sure. wow, when I screw up at work, it's like, oh, I accidentally deleted a file. I wouldn't want to have a, the, the future of a species riding on my shoulders. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm, I'm very heartened by this because just by hearing the introduction you gave for yourself, a little bit about your background is it's very obvious that uh, these plants are in good hands things happen, right? But I'm curious, you know, this combination of, you said, you know, you really never took a botany course and you've always been a grower, whether that be for farming or for production or even just in your home, having hundreds of houseplants. I mm -hmm. love that perspective because that resonates so deeply with me and, and a lot of my core fellow plants people, right? Is that so many of them come to this side of things uh, from hobbies, just having a complete and total obsession with growing and, and right. figuring plants out. You know, how has that kind of shaped the trajectory, I guess, overall, which is a loaded question, but kind of uh, your views on the way we approach conservation of plants? Well, I think it's important to remember the horticultural side of conservation, mm -hmm. um, because so many times when we're coming from a, an academic perspective, you know, analyzing population dynamics and things like that, we can forget that you need to understand how these things grow and how to how to facilitate that in the wild or in your nursery. Um, and I think that having that full picture informing your conservation project, having horticulturalists on the ground and having your, you know, science-based PhDs analyzing, you know, provenance and historical populations and things like that. It's really important because if it's too heavy on either side, it's not going to work. Yeah. And I think for me, what, what you said, just being intoxicated and entranced <laughs> by plants, um, that that's been my life and it still is like there's always something else that I don't know, which is part of why I love this podcast, Shameless oh. Plug, but yeah. I, I get to hear about so many different aspects of the botanical world. And there's always something that I don't know. It's always something exciting and new and something that's going to, you know, sort of like pique your interest. I think most people that are really into plants, there are a few awesome, amazing humans who get super focused on one species or one um, genera. But a lot of people will flit, you kind of go through <laughs> phase, you know, like, oh, for this six years, I was really into orchids. And then I switched over. And right now I'm really into carnivorous plants or whatever it is. And, and I love that the plant kingdom has so many different ways you can go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You just very eloquently put that into focus. There is just for the curious mind, for someone that likes to tinker, for someone that likes to experience the nuances of growing something botanical, that's perfect because just the diversity of approaches for what's readily available, let alone if you really get into it, how far down that rabbit hole you can go. And and, and I really like that you kind of mentioned this idea of getting fixated for a period of time on one group and then moving to another group. And as someone who's always been growing plants to one degree or another, I'm curious to kind of know what some of the bigger arcs in your plant growing experience have been. You know, what were some of the phases you went through and, and how did you kind of pull away just different bits and pieces of experience from those? Oh, God. I mean... <laughs> Loaded, I know. Sorry. That's a huge question. Um, I mean, uh, different times, different things. And, of course, different gardens, different focuses on what I was growing through work as well. Like, I have to say, it's, it's like kind of my shame, but um, <laughs> on my property here in Hawaii, I don't 
really grow too many native plants. The idea we've sort of been clearing and and then replacing the invasive jungle with fruit trees and things like that. But mm-hmm. there's a point that I wanted to get to, and then I'd switch to restoration type native forests, but I just haven't gotten that far in my clearing. <laughs> so <laughs> my yard itself is, you know, I have Brugmansia and all kinds of salvias, and there's a whole strip of tobacco next to my chicken coop. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of all over, right on. I'm all over the board, but, uh, I feel like because I've worked in public gardens for so long, it's almost like cheating um, <laughs> if you're that person because the the nature of public gardens, depending on what garden you're working for, is to have collections of, of a bunch of different plants from different parts of the world, whatever. So just through my job, I get to do so much and such varied propagation, and I've been able to do that for, like I said, most of my adult life. So um, it's kind of like you, there's a freedom to botanical garden propagation where, you know, if I was like, oh, blah, 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 Australian plants or whatever, there's always kind of a way to work it into mm-hmm. what we're doing um, in the workplace. And so <laughs> my personal my personal horticultural stuff is just whatever I feel like and ends up being a lot of edible food crops and garden stuff, things that I can use for my animals and for my kids, yeah. feed my family and then fun things. I have a Bowia volubilis. I'm just looking at my little home Very greenhouse cool. right now. Like, what's in here? I've got some <laughs> begonias. I've got, like, random stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's cool. Uh, you know, I, I do get kind of envious of growers when I see someone that got really into, say, you know, succulents of one type or another, and then you go and oh, see yeah. this, this masked collection. But the personally... The hyper is enviable for sure, but I don't have it. <laughs> Right, right, right. And then, then you start to think about like, oh, okay, well, you kind of get into a group, you you see the range of possibilities of what's available, and that's pretty much it. But it sounds to me like you're someone who is kind of fed by another challenge or something a little bit different. Oh, that's curious over there. Or, hey, that's beautiful. We could probably incorporate this and it produces good fruit. Do you think there's value in terms of uh, just having this sort of generalist type, anything is interesting, I just want to know more kind of approach to your hobby and your passion, but also does that then benefit you as a conservationist to say, okay, we're getting four different endangered species in, all four of these come from different habitat types, we have to figure this out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is exactly what you just described. Um, There is some information that we have as a garden from our experience propagating things um, or from previous growers, but a lot of it is kind of like, well, this hasn't worked. What are we going to do now? And so there's a Sherlock Holmesy sort Hmm. of mysteries element to everything that comes in. Any afternoon of the week, one of our field botanist can show up and be like, oh, here's three cuttings of a plant that has three plants left in the wild. Uh, One of them broke and fell off the cliff and I got this piece. Can you root Uh it? And there's no background or information about what hormone is going to work. So I think that my varied experience definitely informs that. And I don't know from, of course I'm biased, but I think that having hands-on experience growing plants is like the best thing you can have from a propagation perspective, because a lot of it is looking at the tissue, looking at the stem and looking at if there's root nodules coming out around Mm. each node and what's happening and how you think that plant grew. And and it's really a physical feeling, like a gut sense that you get for how to grow something based on how the plant grows in the wild, based on how the stem looks, based on the family. Um, and the experience that you've had with other plants from that family or group or even just the conditions it's growing in, you know, is it, is it mesic? What is it? So I think, I think coming from a, from a horticultural background, coming from a gardening growing background is, is good for propagation. Hmm. I like the way you put that in terms of a physical sense of a plant and, and getting something in your hand and looking at it and, okay, there's some nodes that might be potential root primordia. That there really is, I mean, there's obviously botanical terms to define all of those features, but at the same time, right. when it, you know, translating something you read in a key to physical life is already a little bit of a challenge. But then <laughs> yeah. taking that next step and going, okay, here's how I can use this in this, you know, detective work as you just described, that's really cool. And again, something that really has to come with just getting your hands dirty. You can't necessarily read the recipe and just pick it up where they left off. Oh, yeah. I mean, we hosted uh, earlier, God, I guess it was earlier this year, we hosted this lichen workshop 
uh, at the garden and I was super stoked and signed up for it and went and I tried to like prepare ahead of time by looking at the lightning (laughs) key. (laughs) I was just like, nope. But it was amazing when we got out in the field and we were looking at the lichens and then we were looking at them under the microscope and then you could put them together with the terms and really it's that visual understanding Mm -hmm. that informs the key. And I think that's really super important. It's so easy in the botanical world to get I guess hyper focused, but not in the positive way. But like where you're just where you're just set in your if you're if you're in the nursery or just in the nursery. I've had it happen where I've gone out in the field and not recognized plants that I've grown hundreds of because oh, I've only seen them up into six inches tall. I've never seen them huh. eight feet tall or thirty feet tall. Or I've had you know our herbarium director will come down and jokingly say, "Oh, I never see plants when they're alive." <laughs> you know, so I think. I think it's really important to to kind of get out of your comfort zone on a regular and and see things from the other perspectives, whether it's full grown and in the forest or dead and in an herbarium specimen, you know, so that you can be better at at your, you know, anything, anytime you do that, you get the perspective coming back in. Yeah, totally. And that's so vital, again, to just, I don't know how you can get a complete picture of a plant without having all of those different avenues you just described and, and the yeah. intimate knowledge of okay, here's how it looks in the wild, vastly different than how it looks pampered and well cared for and perfectly attended to in the greenhouse. That is huge. And, you know, so many times I'll read academic literature that's trying to make these big theoretical conclusions on a handful of species, and you could just so easily tell that they have no personal experience with those species at all. Right. And that's troubling. I think what you said about, you know, the morpholo- morphological differences that can show up if you're like pampered and beautiful in a greenhouse versus out in the field, that's a really important thing to understand. I've had an intern, one of my interns this year came into my office and was like, uh, this can't be a phyllostegia. The leaf is huge. It's, this is insane. And it did like, if you picked it up, it wouldn't look anything like what you would think of as this plant, mm. but it was definitely a clone and it had just been grown in the greenhouse and it was just so happy with its osmocote <laughs> and its, you know, pesticides and the perfect conditions. So it was really, really a healthy specimen. But, um, yeah, I think those sorts of things we take for granted, you get to thinking that everything is static when in reality it's not. Wow. Yeah. And that's a really good actual example of that to, to talk about, because again, unless someone's in the position where you do have to go out and figure out what these plants are doing in the wild to then inform the the growing of these plants in conservation nurseries, how again, how often do you have those two bridges or, or two vastly different kinds of approaches being bridged by one person with that know-how? Yeah, and I feel like that's, I mean, my job is really... <laughs> it, it really is kind of like kid in the candy store situation because we do have the ability, we have three, I think three full-time field botanists and we have a, a full ecosystem restoration on the North shore of our Island that I grow all the plants for that I could go out to if I wanted to periodically, we have all these partnerships with other restorations that I get to go to if I want to. And then we have our herbarium and our botanical research center with our botanical library. So there's a lot of really incredible things. Not to mention the gardens themselves. My nursery is located right in between Hmm. McBride and Everton gardens. So I'm just ensconced in botanical garden all the time. It's it's kind of nice, yeah. It's I'm I'm just like getting this like very dreamy aspect to me, just thinking about that lifestyle. Jeez, it's yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad, Um, but I mean, there is also the stress of growing critically endangered plant material, which is which can be depressing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, but uh, I think the heartening thing about it. We do partner with a lot of other conservation organizations and both Mm. state, federal, private, whatever we do, like we'll bid restoration jobs. Um, Right now we're doing a a lot of propagation for Limahuli for riparian restoration Um, after the big rains we had. I don't know if you saw that on the news. We had some pretty hundred year flood type situation this summer. It looked intense. Yeah, it was devastating to parts of the island. And so we're working on that for Limahuli, which is one of our gardens, but then as well for the state for another flood zone. So that's a whole different palette of plants that we're getting to work on it. And it's heartening to see and and to know, personally know all these different individuals who it is their full-time job and a group of people work with them to, to fight for the conservation of these different ecosystems on Kauai um, and on other islands as well. But to see so many people that are, that's their whole drive is to do this conservation work is really um, uplifting no matter what a 
battle it is. Yeah. And what's curious to me, because I have no real insights other than the people that I personally know doing this uh, to some extent or another, is just, again, hearing your background, hearing all of the different reasons you have been hired and, and been paid to grow plants uh, for different objectives, right? Whether that be aesthetic, food, or for conservation. And I'm really curious how your approach, you get in new material, how it differs as uh, is your position here, even between doing stuff for riparian planting or stuff for, like you said, uh, there's three of these plants left in the wild and one fell off the cliff. Here you go. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. And that's in, that to me is just like so insane just to have, have, be that person that someone has yeah. here. Good luck. Uh, you know, what is what is the approach? You mentioned a little bit about this kind of mystery aspect of it where you have to do a lot of homework. But yeah. I, I'm curious, a day in the life, you know, you, you, you get material. What is it like to be a conservation grower? Stressful. <laughs> it's really stressful. <laughs> all right, cool. That's all um, I need to know. No, it's, a, it's, it's different every day. Um, a lot of times I'll joke that greenhouse management is, is a perfect position for somebody with like ADD, which I <laughs> probably have, just because you have to, you can't really do one thing for eight hours. You have to constantly be flitting around and kind of keeping track of a bunch of things at the same time. We do, uh, IPM is a really big part of, of my nursery, specifically because Hawaiian plants are so susceptible to so many, um, just your typical greenhouse pests that were imported. But in addition to that, of course, fungus and disease, oh um, rats, Ooh. there's three species of rats on, on Island and, um, we have to trap for them. We have a nursery cat who takes care of them. Nice. Um, but in addition, they'll still get through periodically. And I've had them girdle stems oh. on my greenhouse benches before. So it's constant. There's that, um, we're always battling snails. So it's kind of keeping your eye on everything simultaneously. And my nursery has anywhere from like 150,000 to 350,000 plants and propagules at any given time. Cool. So I said propagules, so I'm including seeds, right? And that could be much higher if I'm like, for instance, seeding ohia or metrosideros because those seeds are tiny um, and sometimes are seeded by like 10,000 at a time. <laughs> um, but there's usually on on average, I would say between 25,000 and 35,000 plants that are finished and ready to go out. And so it's a balance of the conservation nursery aspect can be frustrating because many of these plants have to be put in helicopters and flown into remote areas or hiked. So you can imagine hiking for six miles, carrying a flat of three and a quarter inch pots versus <laughs> carrying a flat with nine one gallons. Oh. Neither really sounds fun to me, yeah, <laughs> which no. is why I'm not a, not a field worker, but it's a balance of getting these plants out and making sure that we try to propagate them in an appropriate time frame to when they're going to be able to be outplanted because we can't just keep potting them up as in a normal nursery, you know, okay, it's ready for one gallon. We'll pot it up to one gallon. Okay. It's ready for a three gallon. We're going to pot it up again. Mm -hmm. I can't send... 3000 trees out into the forest in three gallon pots. <laughs> so it's, really a, a timing issue and then keeping everything in its optimum health and kind of circulating it out and communicating with my boss and with um, these programs and other gardens, PEP, which is the plant extinction prevention program. We work really closely with them nice. um, and they focus on species that have less than 50 individuals in the wild. Wow. I think there's like around 200, I want to say 237, but on that list. In, yeah, yeah, something yeah. something like that. Um, and so we grow for them frequently, but, you know, it's not just like, okay, it's ready, now take it. We have to make sure that the weather is cooperating, that the site is accessible, that there's helicopter funding, if that's what takes. Um, so there's a lot of different things that are involved. And then also... The level, the sorry about the chicken. It's okay, I love it. I just, I'm trying to just like not giggle. Yeah, we have a lot of chickens. It is it's quiet. Okay. No, I um, so part of it is if we're taking plants out to a remote area or pristine exclosure, really going over everything and like no pests can be on those plants if they're going to those yeah. sorts of areas at all. So the acceptable threshold for pest levels is so low and Ooh. I'm only one person and I am the only full-time staff person in the nursery. So, jeez, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that just puts it all into some perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. So the only way that I can maintain that level of perfectionism 
is to really use my volunteers and interns. So I have volunteers five days a week. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Sometimes. So we have a lot of, uh, we call them snowbirds, but they come in the winter. A lot of them are from Canada or the Midwest and they'll have property or a timeshare that they go to every year, mm. but they'll come in and volunteer with me while they're here. That's cool. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Those people are the only reason I can do my job. And then I usually host anywhere from like six to 10 interns a year from universities and degree programs all over the mainland, England, all around. Um, And those kids help a lot, too. Usually when they're here, my interns will generally do full time. So I'll get a month of two people working full time with me, which helps a lot, of course. Yeah, it's really managing, managing all my help and keeping everything as clean and perfect as possible. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, no, but then, yeah, no small I, task. I speak, I, yeah, no small, no small task at all. But as far as like, what would I do differently um, on a plant by plant basis? Again, it's a plant by plant thing. I mean, sometimes it's down to Googling. I've got a big bookcase full of books in my office that I'll go through. And then I have my own propagation records that I keep. Our IT guys set up a database for us for the nursery. It's sort of like BG base, but uh hmm. Uh, it's just for my nursery, and anytime I move a plant, transplant a plant, dead a plant, something gets planted out, um, I have to enter it into my database. So I could pull up by accession number exactly how many of whatever plant or collection I have, where it is in the nursery, who collected it, what was growing nearby, all of that information. And we added, I think it was a year and a half ago now, the uh, propagation sort of element to that database. And so my, my personal experience, so whether it's, you know, this needs boiling water stratification or this wants to be surface zone or this seems to prefer being treated as fungicide when it's planted or whatever, all of that. Well, that's good. I mean, thankfully, databases are easier than they've ever been in human history now to yes. <laughs> have and run. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really curious because the unfortunate moniker of being the extinction capital of the United States, at least, if not the world, is, is the fact that... Uh, it's not a it's not an easy solution. There's no one reason plants are going extinct or endangered or threatened. So I'm curious no, for sure. as a as a plant person that's been growing all these different things, there's got to be some rare and threatened plants that are super easy to grow in captivity provided yeah. you eliminate X, Y, and Z. And then there's got to yep. be ones that are super challenging. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And it's so funny because I feel I think about that a lot because there are I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of three or four species that are so easy to propagate in the nursery that it's hard to remember that they are either on the pep list or borderline on the pep list. And so it's translating that into, okay, I can make 3,000 of these, but why aren't they surviving and where are we going to put them? And that's not, that's outside of my job description, but um, yeah, it is kind of a thing. And and a lot of these organizations that we partner with, I think I mentioned earlier, would be outlanting in exclosures. So that's fenced exclosures. Okay. Because one of the major issues that we've had in Hawaii is that even if, like, I can't grow these plants and then take them out in the forest and plant them because of feral undulates are a huge problem. Um, oh. Pigs and goats and, and eradication is not really a possibility for those things for multitudes of reasons. But control is difficult. We do also have deer on this island. And again, the rats, which will eat the seeds and occasionally the bark and girdle stems of plants. And then you throw in African snails and all the other fun guys that are on island. Um, it's uh, it's definitely a multifaceted problem. There's native hibiscus, like hibiscus clayi, super, super easy to grow. Mm-hmm. And yet is just, I believe the population is just over, it's not on the pep list because it's just over the, the limitation for pep. And then several native mints, so they're Lamiaceae that are, of course, super easy to grow, and yet they're short-lived, sort of ephemeral when you outplant them. They succumb to powdery mildew, and they're delicious to eat, apparently. And so it's sort of this, how long are we going to continue to aggressively propagate these, and and at what point are we going to figure out a way to keep the populations alive somewhere, even if it's in our garden or in an exclosure somewhere, that sort of... Brigamia uh, insignis is sort of our the panda bear species for Hawaii. I don't know if you're familiar. People no, call it um, so. cabbage on a stick. It's uh, kind of a caudiciform base, and then it has a rosette of leaves on top. And we propagate many, many of them every year for display. Occasionally, we sell a few. We plant them out at Limahuli Garden. Um, sometimes we'll sell them to small restorations that are uh, like public 
sites, you know, um, but they're not a candidate for true restoration because they are no longer, generally no longer setting seed. Occasionally we'll have one self, but most of it's done through hand pollination. And there, it's really funny. There's thousands of them sold in Europe. Every time I get an intern from Europe, they're like, oh yeah, I've seen those at the grocery store. <laughs> like, what? They call them the Hawaiian palm, which is really funny. Oh, they're not a weird. palm at all. Um, there's one, there's one plant left, one wild plant on the Nepali coast hanging off the edge of a cliff. Oh, and so that's something that we propagate uh, regularly. We send seeds to other botanical gardens. Um, we bank seed every year, but it's not a candidate for, for restoration. So there are those sorts of things that kind of ride that line. Is this something where the pollinator went extinct or, you know, the, is the, the thought pol- is that the pollinator went extinct. It's thought to have been a now extinct type of hawk moth. Um, but oh. I don't know that any definite statement has sure. been made about that. Um, the flower is pretty long, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah. It's there, there've been a lot of introduced insects and introduced birds. And again, the rats who've done d- damage to the insect populations that were here. A lot of our plants in Hawaii were bird pollinated. And now that those populations of native birds are dramatically declining and going extinct, hmm. it's kind of like, well, what's going to fill the niche for the things that can't self as well, you know? Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, this is this is the truth of it, right? And again, yeah. it's so heartening to know that people like you are working really hard at, at maintaining as much as possible, but it, it kind of probably feels like triage sometimes more than it does like... Oh, uh, sure. Uh, we've got this, but I'm curious, again, is, you know, being a hobby grower, someone who mm-hmm. grows a ton of plants, has grown them all your life, you go yeah. online and you see so often there's a lot of plants out there that share the same fate where they're probably extinct or if not on the brink of ex- extinction right. in the wild. And people are growing them like crazy in their homes and in their gardens yeah. around the world. And I realize there's a ton of red tape. I realize there's a lot of bureaucracy and no single solution. No one's going to come up with a plan for this. But I'm wondering from your perspective, and you can be as elaborate or as evasive of this as as you want, do you think there is merit in some of these species, some of the really easy to propagate ones, the ones that are just under threat because, say, there's too many damn goats on that side (laughs) of the mountain. Do you think there's merit to just saying, okay, we can set up something where the public has access to these plants to grow them, maybe through some sort of certification program? Do you think there's value in considering that as an option of, we don't have the resources, no government is going to invest in this, but we have a ton of people here that want to garden? Yeah, I mean, I think that is important. And I think that when there are programs set up like that, that sometimes it's this non-traditional approach that we have to kind of start looking at um, all over, not just in Hawaii. And yeah. I mean, not to think about Hawaii might be in the lead for losing species, but everybody else is right behind us. Yeah. And so my hope is that, and I think a lot of people's hope is that the conservation work that we've done here and that we're continuing to do can be a blueprint for people elsewhere and kind of give them a picture of what's worked and what hasn't worked both in the tropics and not in the tropics um, how to bridge you know those gaps between the conservation community and the local community and that's a real big issue in Hawaii and explain to people who aren't plant people why this little species of you know mint that only grows in two populations <laughs> is worth all this work um, that's not valuable for humans in any way, but why preserving these ecosystems is important. I think getting that across. Um, and then something that people in Hawaii conservation talk about a lot is um, the need to focus on the species that aren't quite on the brink of extinction, to seed bank our common species, mm. to get those common species or slightly less common species into landscaping and into our communities, whether it's through you know, our plant sales, or I know every year we give hundreds of plants away at Arbor Day and we always focus on natives. So, um, trying to put native plants in the forefront, Hawaii is a resort community that makes a lot of money from tourism. And so you walk into the Hyatt here or the, you know, any of the major resorts, they're going to look very much like a major resort in Florida or the Bahamas or the Virgin Islands. The same plant palettes are being Hmm. planted and the hotels are are, they sometimes reach out to us and we've sold, especially, I know I just mentioned the high, but we've sold plants to them before native plants for their gardens. But um, I think those sorts of things, focusing on, you know, airports and 
um, public parking lots and moving away from fancy Chinese hibiscus as pretty as they are yeah. and mass plantings of our native hibiscus or our native gardenias or whatever will grow in that area and not just using peanut plant or wooddelia or whatever is easy and cheap at the nursery um, but trying to make the desire for native plants and I, and I know I've heard you talk about the importance of that on your show before whatever region you're in. But I think people just aren't even familiar with it. And for sure, people that come on vacation, they're just looking for that tropical palette, you know? But yeah. I think all of that is important as it's get people to appreciate those plants for their own beauty. Yeah, yeah. And that, that the beautiful aspect of it and this resort nature of it doesn't have to come at such a great cost, you know? And, right. and I've, I've, I was funny because I was talking with someone about this in Costa Rica recently is everyone wants to come and see a bird of paradise, Right. But, you know, to see that growing native, just go to Africa, right? And and, and I, I struggle with this a lot because communication is central to what I'm doing here. It's central to any sort of conservation mission is getting people to care, right? Right. And so I think what you said about novel approaches to conservation can also apply to the novel approaches in the way that we talk about conservation and talk about native plants. I think a lot of times uh, we kind of fall into this little niche where the only way to talk about it is be real folksy, talk about beneficial insects and harmony and right. all that stuff. But in reality, I think it's a lot of the times is people aren't thinking like that enough or don't want to think like that. Why not just have people that know plants like yourself grow them, know which ones are the ones that are going to be the most visually uh, stunning, and then kind of slip it in under their noses. They'll notice yeah. it. And then that's a yeah. whole new door that's open willingly to the conversation of native plants. Well, and I think that our botanical garden, I mean, our focus is tropical plants, right? We're national tropical botanical gardens. So, you know, we've got, I think, the second or third largest collection of erythrinas in the country. And Whoa. we have all these incredible tropical plants, beautiful, beautiful non-native tropical plants. And those are often the draw. You know, people mm. come to our South Shore gardens, at least, to see those collections. They come to see our Morton Bay figs. And then while they're there, oh, here's our conservation mission. Here's our native section, which is one of the largest collections of native plants on the island. Or Dang. here is our nursery. So I actually, the tour, we have tours through the garden and the tour department takes tours through my nursery twice a day, I think six days a week. Nice. Um, and so that's a really unique way to get a picture of Hawaiian native plants and what's happening with conservation in Hawaii. These people are coming because, oh, pretty botanical garden. I want to see some flowers. And then, bam, here's some conservation. This is what <laughs> this is what your you know money is paying for. This is what your attendance at the garden is doing. Um, besides keeping these beautiful gardens here for you to walk through, we're doing on the ground conservation work. And I think it's important to get that message out because often it's sort of behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, uh, way too often, actually. I know too many botanical gardens that I've visited. You never, ever get to see production or anything going on right. in those other greenhouses. So to have tours that specifically target that as a, a stopping point is really uplifting to hear. And it is exciting because, again, it's this multifaceted approach. Bring them in, get them inspired, and then drop the conservation mission on them yeah. instead of expecting them to track it down themselves and to go to a nursery and be like, oh, I need... Metasideros, you know, that's, <laughs> we can't expect everyone to be on that, that, that level. No, of course not. And I mean, of course, the plant people who are super plant people are already there, you're preaching to the choir, but you know, you might get somebody that's just moved here and bought a, a house and they come through and, and get the idea to landscape their yard. I mean, or they just want to donate money to the garden or they come in and volunteer. I've had people that have come through on the nursery tours and ended up signing up to volunteer with me while they awesome. were on vacation for like two weeks. Yeah, it's great. So I think just getting that message out is, is super important and it's any way you can really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, no one should have a monopoly on the approach. I think uh, the more we put out, the more varied interests and varied backgrounds will be attracted to it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, a big part of that too is interns. Honestly, <laughs> um, that's one of it's one of my favorite parts of my job is hosting interns. It's one of the biggest thrusts of how I get my work done. But I get interns from all over the world, and they may or may not work in the tropical plant community. They may or may not work in Hawaii. Ultimately. But they're going to come away with such an in-depth understanding of conservation, both on the ground and in the nursery, um, that I don't think you can get anywhere else. Mm. And I think once you do that, once you have that in you, it's in you for your life. Big time. The understanding of how important it is, you know. So I think 
just constantly interfacing with as many people, school groups, you know, having kids come in and work in the nursery and talk to them about our mission and talk to them about what we're doing. Um, that's super important. Yeah. And I mean, just the fact that you're getting people interested in talking about plant conservation, you know, a lot of times it's just breezed over as habitat. We have to restore habitat. And then they're like, oh, let's talk about the animals we're doing this for. But in reality, you know, this multifaceted, multi-species approach is the only way we're getting habitat back. So... There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think our garden on the North Shore, although right now because of the flooding, the road is is limited, the access, public access. But the preserve, which is behind the garden, um, which is an entire ecosystem restoration and, and frankly is one of the most successful restorations I've ever seen in my life. Nice. Um, from the understory to the trees, everything is being done. And that is an incredible way to kind of, and one of the few places you can kind of walk into not a pristine native forest, but at least some semblance of a native forest and, and get an idea of, of what those plants would have been and what it would have looked like. And, and that's a huge, important connection for the public. So it makes me happy we send all the plants over there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you're raising little banners and posters for this <laughs> greater mission, though, and that's got to feel so good. Yeah, it definitely does. It, it can be it can be uh, overwhelming for sure, but uh, I think regardless of where you're at, there's no better way to spend a, a work week than growing plants. Totally, um, <laughs> it's really like you can't complain about that. Uh, the garden that I'm in, or the gardens that I'm in between. Um, McBride and Allerton this past year our bread food institute put in an agroforestry project in partnership with Patagonia and so it's this demonstration agroforestry area underneath the breadfruit orchard and the idea is to create a uh, an area for the public for farmers to come and see how they could increase their yields in between their orchard crops and so I've gotten to grow all these fun vegetables and things that aren't critically endangered for that. Nice. <laughs> and so that's been kind of like a junk food growing experience. <laughs> and uh, But also it's such a cool project and it's so fun and so important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was traditionally an agricultural island and an agricultural economy. And we've just sort of transitioned out of it into almost a completely tourist-based economy in the last 50 years. But I think, and a lot of people think, it's important to nourish that agricultural history and and keep it as much as we can, um, flourishing, moving away from imported foods and into locally grown foods. And in a way that's, I think, a little more emphasized when you're on an island in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, a little more vulnerable. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the exact percentages, but I think right now we, we are at something like 90% imported or something Damn. for our food. Yeah, which is nuts because it's, it's a perfect growing environment. Yeah, I mean, to think that, you know, you could have mangoes six months out of the year fresh off the tree is just, uh, why, <laughs> why wouldn't you want more fruit <laughs> yeah it's true and and well that's kind of the whole purpose of the bread food institute too is to increase food security <laughs> around the world they've done a push in the hawaiian islands for the last few years it all blends together but i know i grew hundreds of breadfruit trees that were given away through a grant to community members and landowners homeowners to encourage food production on a local level and they did that throughout the Hawaiian Islands. But um, yeah, there's a, there's always something different and exciting and it all is equally important in my mind. So yeah, and it's so cool that you get to have a hand in, in so much of it. But I think from a, a plant perspective, for someone that's been doing this passionately for so long, you know, being on Hawaii is such a unique experience for so many people, especially if you're interested in plants and especially if you're growing them. So I'm very curious if you can even do this, is to tell me some memorable species that you've worked with or currently work with that really just kind of stand out to you. I'd be remiss if I let you go and didn't ask that type of question. Plants that are, they're all memorable. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I love them all. Um, Good answer. I have, a, I have a lot of fun with the Aristolochias. And those, of course, are not native to Hawaii, but they're fun. And uh, I enjoy the ohia, of course, now that's even more important. We're mm -hmm. doing uh, massive collections for seed banking, and rapid ohia death has been detected on Kauai. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard. So yeah. um, we're sort of really trying to be proactive and do a lot of propagation and give plants to the community. And uh, so that's fun. But as a as a species, the variability in the leaf form and the flowers is exciting. <laughs> um, 
what else do I love that I grow? Well, I've got to, uh, one of the fun things talking about challenging and, and different uh, propagation methods and having to learn about different types of plants. We have uh, probably one of, if not, it's one of the only fern propagation labs in oh, the wow. state. And it's my job to take care of it. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And so I had plenty of experience growing ferns from division. Like everybody that's worked in a nursery, I think, has done that. Uh -huh. um, but I'd never grown them from school. And in 2012, I had to learn how to do that. And so <laughs> wow. that was a challenge, and it's been exciting. It continues to be a challenge. It's, it's really exciting. We have a research associate from um, Estonia, actually, who comes oh, every, wow. year, every year and pretty much wrote the book about Hawaiian ferns and is, like, the expert. So she kind of guides me via email. I'll send her pictures of fern spores and <laughs> gametophytes <laughs> and whatever. And, uh, and then with interns, um, depending on when I get interns that are interested in working in the lab, it's definitely more hunched over and, and more air-conditioned than most of the nursery work. But that's been super fun, just Neat. learning what substrates they'll germinate on and getting them to survive and then transition from the lab out to the nursery. Right now we have about 600 little transplanted sporophytes Aww. that are surviving and doing well. So that's, that's fun. That's so neat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not a specific, I'm not giving you a species. No, that's okay though. I mean, just, it's the first time I've ever heard of anyone doing like serious fern spore propagation. Like you said, most of the time it's like production, get them out there as quickly as possible. This is right. so cool that someone's taking the time or, uh, you know, an organization is taking the time to do it the right way, the way it has to be done for them to be functioning wild specimens. Well, yeah, I mean, for conservation, you know, division is not the ideal propagation technique, of course, just like cloning of any kind is not the ideal propagation technique. So being able to grow them from spore is critical for healthy outplantings. And uh, it's not a sterile lab. We're not doing it agar. We're doing it in substrate. Good. Um, but uh, it's really fun. Nice. <laughs> I mean... Uh, it sounds it's like it. It's extra stressful. It's really hard, but it's it's really fun. That's been a, definitely a kick. But yeah, I don't know. Everything. I like it when I get a species that I'm not familiar with, honestly, whether it's native or non-native. When my boss brings me seeds and says, hey, try to grow this. And I'm like, have you grown it before? And he's like, nope. And then I have to figure it out. That's really fun. Awesome. Um, it doesn't happen a lot when it does. It's exciting. Yeah. Doing the research, looking at it, figuring it out and watching them sprout. Or also things coming out of, we have an incredible seed bank. We have a beautiful seed bank. Um, and when things come out of storage that are 20 years old and they grow, <laughs> like, that's Dang. amazing. To me. Yeah. Like that never ceases to amaze me. Um, something else that we do differently than most seed banks is uh, our seed bank manager, when he does his germination trials, he'll send me the petri dishes if they're rare. Huh. Not for everything, but if they're rare natives, I'll send them down, and then I transplant them with tweezers out of the petri dish into substrate and baby them. Uh, it's awesome. We uh, had like I think we outplanted over 200 of this Shadea coensis, super rare species that were just out of petri dishes. They came out of petri dishes, and they were so tiny, insane. Like it just that that makes me so happy. So. That challenge, definitely the challenge and being able to wow. grow things that, that don't look like they want to yeah. grow. And you hear it. I mean, it's so, it, it just tickles me how you can, you just know that you're, this, the, the hobbyist that was there all along is still there and it's just being oh, yeah. like driven to do more. And you have uh, this wonderful position to showcase your talents as a grower and to use them for a, a much bigger issue. But again just serving as like a, a proof of concept for other organizations. It's just, uh, bravo, bravo. <laughs> well, it's still really fun, which is, I think, key. And I guess it, if, if it ever stops being fun, then I then I would stop doing it. But I can't imagine plants ceasing to be exciting and mysterious and amazing. Well, in the uh, almost hour we've been talking, I, I just, if you lost the passion, something, I feel like something <laughs> bad would have had to have happened. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I can't really imagine it. At this point, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop being yeah. fun. But, yeah, it, it's it's pretty incredible. And, and I'm lucky enough to be at the garden, which is such a unique place. 
So I, I appreciate you doing this podcast because I do think it's super important um, for other people. I obviously have a love of plants and I don't think you have to work in conservation or work with plants to understand the importance and beauty of yeah. them. But there's so many kids now going into kids. I say kids, but they're like 20 year olds, 25 <laughs> year olds going into uh, conservation based degree programs. And that's huge. That's amazing. And um, to kind of grab that passion and keep that passion going is super important. So big time. Yeah. Well, you are a living example for people to uh, to just look up to. I really appreciate the fact that you <laughs> reached out to me and we made this happen. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, more about what's going on at the garden, how do you recommend them finding out more? Well, we have a website, ntbg.org, but um, I think even better than just checking out our website, and I would recommend this for every botanical garden, whether there's one in your community or not, is to become a member. Mm. It's so important to gardens. Um, and most gardens, I know ours has a quarterly publication, this beautiful magazine that's put together with like articles written about different projects that are going on. Um, and then once you're a member, I think they send out, yeah, they do because I get it. It's a like an e-newsletter too, periodically, real short with pictures and updates about fundraising campaigns and field work and volunteers and plant sales and things like that. But even if you're not in the area, I know the first time I came to Hawaii just on vacation, I was here for a week and I got a membership to NTBG because <laughs> I was like, support your botanical gardens. You know, yeah. it's, it's critical. Um, we're transitioning as a, as a species of botanical gardens. We're transitioning from, you know, large single donors to figuring out how to maintain ourselves in this new era and how to stay relevant yeah. as a, like in the museum community at large. And, and membership is a big part of that. So I think that's super important. But yeah, we have Facebook and Instagram, just like most places. It's just all NTBG. It's definitely worth checking out. If you're in Florida, you can go visit our garden there. If you're in Maui, you can visit our garden there. Please, if you come to Kauai, come hang out with me. I love <laughs> having company. Volunteer with me. I uh, like, like everybody. So There you go. <laughs> well, if people want to contact you about volunteering, how do you recommend they get a hold of you? Oh, it's super easy to sign up. Um we, on our website, it's like ntbg.org backslash volunteer. And then you can just actually sign up completely online Perfect. with the conservation nursery. So it's, it's not hard to figure out. But yeah, please come volunteer. Just take a tour of the garden. <laughs> well, yeah, if uh, I find myself out there in the not-too-distant future, you can bet I'm going to hit that up. Heck yeah. <laughs> this has been uplifting. I realize you're up against a lot, but I just I can tell you're well ready to go. And uh, I, I really think the plants have a good friend in you. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I think I speak for everyone when I say keep up the amazing work. Awesome. Keep those podcasts coming. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. You have yourself a great day. You too. Yep. Cheers. All right. That wraps it up for this week. So many cool things there. Her job is incredible. I know she's very busy, but she's doing an important work. And after that conversation, it's easy to see that they have the right person for the job. I thank Ashley for taking time out of her schedule to talk with us. Again, all of those links to the National Tropical Botanical Garden are up on the website. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and check out the link for this episode and links that are associated with every episode that I put out here. Again, go check out Flora. Just Google Flora DK Publishing or head over to the spot of the website for this episode and click on the link. It's an incredible book, and with the holidays coming up, if you want someone in your life to know a little bit more about plants and have a fun, interesting time learning about it, maybe consider buying it. Also, I just want to give a shout-out to all of our supporters over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash plants. Consider helping this podcast out. Everyone's donations go many, many miles into making this a better podcast, so I thank everyone who supported us thus far, and I highly encourage all of my listeners to go check it out and see what we got going on over there. We've got a lot of kickbacks. You're not just giving money to the podcast. You're getting a lot of cool stuff in return. Also... While we're on that note, go to youtube.com slash plants and check out our teaser for our upcoming film, Cascades, that was all funded thanks to the generous supporters over on Kickstarter. youtube.com slash plants teasers for the upcoming Cascades film, plus all of the wonderful little plant films we have been putting out over the last couple of years. All right, everyone, that's enough out of me. I don't have anything more for you this week, but I've got a lot of great stuff on the horizon, as always, so stay tuned, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. Until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.